1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Next week, of course, is the Republican National Convention. Harold Meyerson will have our preview of the historic changes in the Republican Party that will culminate in Cleveland, where they will nominate... uh, what's his name? Also, we haven't really gotten over the 60s, and neither has Clara Bingham... She interviewed 100 witnesses on both sides of the struggles of that era to figure out what really happened and what it all means today. Her new book is Witness to the Revolution. But first, after the killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile last week by police in Baton Rouge and St. Paul, and after the killing of five police officers in Dallas by a black man, Black Lives Still Matter. For that, we turn to Kai Wright. He's Features Editor of The Nation. He writes about racial justice, economic inequality, health care, and sexuality. He's also a radio guy. He hosted the podcast There Goes the Neighborhood. It was a fantastic series on the gentrification of Brooklyn, produced by The Nation in WNYC. Really one of the best podcasts of the year. You can listen at iTunes or TheNation.com. His most recent piece for TheNation.com was written after the killings in Baton Rouge, St. Paul, and Dallas. It's titled Black Lives Still Matter. Kai Wright, welcome to the program.
2: My pleasure. I'll have to say it's the second best podcast after (laughs) Starbaking.
1: Tuesday, Obama spoke in Dallas at the memorial to the police officers who were killed there. What impressed me about it was that... uh, He spoke explicitly about the larger context and he named the names of the two black men who had been killed by police. Elsewhere, earlier in the week, he, he said the words Philando Castile. He talked a little bit about who he was. He said the word Alton Sterling and Baton Rouge, talked a little bit about him. I'm sure Fox News has been complaining that this was inappropriate and that he should have limited his remarks to the five officers in Dallas. I, th- I thought the fact that he didn't was big. I thought it was good. What did you think of that speech?
2: Uh, I thought it was a classic Obama take um, on race and, and really echoed most closely his philadelphia speech he's, he's you know as he said in the speech he 's had to give these kinds of talks too many times in the course of his presidency, uh, but it was really his Philadelphia speech from his campaign that I was most reminded of in the sense of you know him really appealing to us on us as Americans on a personal level to be more generous with each other about race and to understand that nobody's perfect. And in that sense,
3: you know, he,
2: he really did what I think was important and necessary in, in the sense of, of saying that there are, there are legitimate and just police officers out there and they should be celebrated, and that in particular these five men were killed as public servants, and there is, no, uh, there is no excuse for that kind of thing, and, and we absolutely needed to hear the, the nation's highest-ranking public servant say that. But then he, it, was, it was striking to hear him say, say those names, but I thought more striking was when he concluded what he, he, he said. He stood at a police memorial you know, to an audience of, of police officers and said, you know, police departments are not infallible, They're not above critique, and we must critique them. And that, I thought, was particularly striking, because this is one of the core issues, right, is that we cannot critique the police department at all. Uh, and he went to a memorial for slain police officers and critiqued them, and did it, though, in this context of uh, his Philadelphia speech, you know, where he says, listen, you know, black people have some stuff to work on, and white people have some stuff to work on. I don't know if I agree with that construction, but the, but the, but the landing uh, of, of saying we have to be able to critique our police departments, even in the midst of this kind of tragedy. Uh, I think that was important and striking.
1: Well, let's start with the elemental question this week. Did the shooting of police officers in Dallas change anything about the shootings of black men in Baton Rouge or in, in St. Paul? Absolutely not. I, I think
2: the through line, if anything, uh, in all of in these in Orlando and in, in 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 the in the just depressing train of death that uh, we are confronted with, is just how how horrifically violent of a society we live in, and there is violence that is inflicted by the state upon uh, residents uh, of the United States, and there is violence that is that is direct inflicted by the state upon people uh, abroad, and then there is the violent. Violence we inflict upon one another because of the the, the way in which we are awash at guns. I mean, one of the great perversities of Dallas. There are many perversities of that event, but you know, this was an anti-violence march yeah. that turned into a mass murder, at mm-hmm. which it was difficult for the police to hunt the murderer because there were so many people carrying. Weapons openly, assault weapons, assault weapons, weapons openly. So I think if there's anything to take away from it, it's that we are really in a, a perversely violent society, and that uh, if we're going to fight to make Black Lives Matter, we also have to be able to fight that.
1: Well, there has been one one big change since the Dallas killings, and that's the intensification of the attacks on Black Lives Matter led by. Rudy Giuliani, who on the, the Yak shows on TV on Sunday called Black Lives Matter, quote, inherently racist because he said white lives matter, too. It's, it's not the most original argument, but you do, <laughs> you do hear it a lot.
2: I think I'm heartened, though, in that the Giuliani's of the world, and frankly, it's often just Giuliani now at this point, are increasingly Considered in appearing absurd when they make these statements. You know, I think one of the, the notable stories of the past couple of weeks is uh, Dallas Police Chief David Brown, yeah. um, who, be- who actually became the law enforcement voice on this. You know, not really Giuliani, not police unions. Rather, Brown became the face of of the conversation for the state. Um, and there's a lot of really important things about that. He is a black man. And he's unapologetically black, too. I think this is, this is, this is a notable and important thing. You know, He wears his blackness as part of who he is and as part of his leadership style. At the funeral, the man read Stevie Wonder lyrics as, as part of his eulogy of the five mm-hmm. officers. And so he shows up with his blackness and his, and his background in a black community He brings that to this conversation, and it takes him to a different place. He's still speaking as a law enforcement officer, certainly, and he's still speaking in defense of law enforcement. But he created space for a more nuanced conversation about this than we we would have had, certainly a more nuanced conversation about this than we had following the assassinations of the officers in New York City on the heels of the Eric Garner case.
1: Well, let's look for a minute at what happened in St. Paul. It's my hometown, and Philando Castile went to my high school, St. Paul Central. He and I are both alumni of St. Paul Central. We've learned he was a supervisor in a public school cafeteria. Everybody there seems to have thought he was a terrific guy. I have to say the Black Lives Matter people in the Twin Cities, said those details shouldn't matter. Even if he mm-hmm. was not a terrific guy, even mm-hmm. if he yeah. was friendless and unemployed, that cop shouldn't have killed him. And, and, of course, they're right about that. If he was friendless and unemployed and criminal, the cops shouldn't have killed him.
0: <laughs>
2: you know. Um, that said, I, I do, speaking in first person here, yeah. this is not a matter of politics, this is, I, I, I feel like the parade and the spectacle of black death that certainly in the past two years, but uh, since Michael Brown's killing, but, you know, it, it goes much, much, much before that. The, 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 the frequency with which we are uh, called upon to look at, to witness on behalf of black death makes me long for witnessing on behalf of black life as well. And, yeah. and, and so I do think it's terribly important that... That, that every time this happens, that we, we, we stop and remember that this was a human being in uh, small and quotidian ways. I was so moved by uh, Alton Sterling's aunt's memories of him. You know, he was a large man, and you know, she she talked about how he was gregarious and and would use his size as the punchline of jokes. And I kind of read into that that he's putting people at ease with his with you know with his size. And uh, you know, and in hearing about the ways he him as a salesman and just how natural of a salesman he was when he was selling CDs. You know, the way he would, He knew all of the blues, he knew every blues CD that ever was recorded. He could always quote you the lyrics from it if you walked up to his booth and asked for it. Those kinds of things that make the, both the men, the men who were killed and then all of us into human beings, I think are crucially important to hear when we're in a world in which in 24 hours periods we are, we, are, we are called upon to watch on video the execution of two black men. I, I think I think it's important to talk about, yeah, he was a good guy. Somebody loved him. Yeah. Somebody loved him.
1: There's one other, I think, important piece of news from St. Paul. I don't know if this made the national media. Philando Castile had been pulled over at least 52 times in yeah. traffic stops in recent years around the Twin Cities, given citations for minor offenses, including driving without a muffler, Not wearing a seatbelt, he was assessed something like seven thousand dollars in fines and fees. Although he got more than half of the eighty-six violations dismissed, I couldn't forget the Sandra Bland story that was on the front, on the cover of the Nation. Same kind of thing. Why? Why was Philando Castile pulled over fifty-two times?
2: Because in decimated municipalities. All across the country, police now act as tax tax collectors on the poor because the politics of austerity that have uh, over the past 30 years led to massive divestment from particularly black and Latino cities and neighborhoods. Uh, have left public officials with few choices, and 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 that as I wrote that zealotry begat a whole other set of zealotry, which was oh okay well then we will har- we will we will fill our coffers through fines and fees and harassment of black bodies, uh, and we saw this in Ferguson, we saw it in Sandra Bland's case, we saw it she that's both for her down in Texas, where she was killed, and in her hometown, uh, in outside of, just outside of Illinois, yeah. outside of Chicago, in Illinois. We're, we're now hearing about it in the suburbs of St. Paul. It is true everywhere. It's true in New York City, where this idea, you know, where it comes together with the idea of broken windows policing, right? Like, so we have these two streams. We have these decimated places that are collecting taxes by harassing black bodies, and then we have these places that are, in my estimation, justifying the size of their police bureaucracy by the harassment of black bodies. And so Eric Garner dies over, over selling cigarettes and he too had been repeatedly harassed over this misdemeanor before we arrived at, um, at a confrontation. And so to me, the big, the, the big picture here is something that has been true since the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act, is that too much of law enforcement is set up to harass black people, <laughs> and we just have too much of it. And so, so that's been going on for a long time, and the current versions of it between broken windows and, 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 and finding ways to finance our cities mean that there is too many interactions between law enforcement and, and, and citizenry. are they, they, just too many act, interactions. And some subset of them are going to turn into conflict, and some subset of those conflicts are going to turn deadly. And notably, both the president and, again, David Brown have raised this question as a consequence of, uh, of the Dallas shooting. Uh, and that's a remarkable turn of events to come out of, that, that, that the conversation to come out of Dallas is that we use police for too many things. And that's a function of David Brown introducing that idea. Now, he's coming at it from a different perspective that, you know, the police departments are overburdened and they're asked to be school counselors and they're asked to be social workers and mental health care providers and, and so forth. But however you get there, the point is police do too many things and they do them well armed and they're going to lead to conflict and we need fewer interactions between us and our cops.
1: Kai Wright, read him at TheNation.com. Listen to his podcast, There Goes the Neighborhood. Thank you, Kai. Thank
2: you so very much.
1: When the Republicans hold their convention to nominate Donald Trump in Cleveland next week, it'll be one of the most significant in their history. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of The American Prospect, a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Before we talk about the Republicans, let's talk about the news this week from the Democrats. Tuesday, Bernie finally endorsed Hillary. What is your perspective on that event?
3: Well, you know, a lot of people were saying uh, Bernie has uh, sacrificed his leverage and he's waiting too long and he's hurting Hillary. I don't believe any of those are actually correct. For a guy who sacrificed his leverage, he won an awful lot in the platform deliberations that came out over the weekend. Uh, And I think he did that in part because the best way to bring sitting-on-the-fence fence Bernieites along... Uh, is to show that he has and his campaign has in fact moved the Democratic Party to the left and moved Hillary Clinton to the left and it has i mean on the platform the there's the endorsement of the uh, the fifteen dollar minimum uh, uh, minimum wage the uh, uh, free college tuition uh, for uh, anyone uh, with a family income under one hundred and twenty five thousand bucks. Uh, a number of things, and if I can just get off on one particular subject for a moment, please. Uh, there, there is the general uh, word out there that well, he didn't win on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which in fact Hillary also opposes, but we know President Obama, having committed himself to that, still supports. Well, what happened was the platform committee actually passed a platform plank which explicitly condemned the contents. Of the TPP, it condemned the investor settlement dispute mechanism, the private courts for corporations. It condemned the whole process of, you know, deliberation uh, that trade deals have gone through before in these closed sessions. It it really condemned, and this this, this passed uniformly in the platform committee, pretty much the, the the very guts and core of the TPP. It just didn't condemn the TPP then by name uh... it uh, uh-huh. it uh, refused to condemn the framing device but it condemned everything within the frame so i mean i think you know bernie really prevailed on that and it made it very clear that there's simply no support in the democratic party except you know for the handful of wall street types who are you know under under attack in other parts of the platform uh... for the kind of trade deal that this country has largely committed itself to over the past three decades so i, I think bernie won a lot and having won a lot This was now the time to do what he was always going to do. I mean, people who said, oh, he's going to be another Ralph Nader. If he was going to be another Ralph Nader, he would have run a third-party route, which he never gave any indication that he was going to do, and in fact, explicitly said at various points he wouldn't do it. So I think think it was a a genuine endorsement. I think he gave a compelling talk. I think Hillary gave a compelling talk, and, um, you know, Bernie's main mission will be to go to, like, college towns and places like that, and point out that there are, uh, for all the various imperfections of Hillary Clinton, significant differences between her and Donald Trump, which uh, you'd have to be woefully blind and willing to roll the dice on a lot of people's lives uh, uh, not to see.
1: Bernie got 13 million votes, and his purpose wasn't just to... Improve the platform or deliver 13 million more votes to Hillary. At least we've been talking here for a long time about building a longer lasting movement on bernie you with bernie's organizers hundreds of thousands of trained organizers and his 13 million supporters do you see any signs of the bernie movement maintaining a separate existence that could last uh, into the presidency of hillary clinton and act as a pressure group a check a prod uh, and a perhaps even a veto group on her presidency
3: well there's the de facto and de jure uh, element of that. Clearly one effect, I think, of Bernie's campaign, almost no matter whether it builds something explicit or not going forward, uh, is there are certain things that the party has done in the past that it simply cannot do again, you know, the, any anything about the Wall Street regulation or deregulation. I mean, certain things are now off the table as as a result. Of shifts in the zeitgeist, which the uh, Sanders campaign made visible for all to see. Yes. Uh, in terms of institutionally, where does it go from here? This is this something I've been writing about since the early spring? Uh, yes. It's, it's still it's still a little unclear. Bernie's list, obviously, is the best left wing list in American politics since forever, and uh, is a highly coveted asset. You know, he said today, interestingly, he said today he not only would go all over the place campaigning for Hillary Clinton, but for Democratic House and Senate candidates as well, in which case that list, again, is uh, is valuable. In terms of groups that are planning long-term work, I think if you look at uh, groups like People's Action or the Working Families Party, there's a lot of talk about various progressive groups, A, coming together more than they have in the past. I don't think that would result in the formation of a single one single left entity but i think you'll see more cooperation and more strategic focus from these groups on on on, on things like really finding you know primary, democratic primary candidates who are you know sanders sanders types to the left and and you know in like in, in the house races that the democrats need to win to retake the house focusing on that for 2018 but focusing on on getting real progressives and not of uh, uh, the uh, whatever the current incarnation of uh, of blue dogs, of centrist Democrats being elected in, in those districts. So I think there is going to be uh, a lot of focus on on that in 2018 and uh, on uh, winning what can be won in 2016. But I, I think it'd be through several institutions, not just one.
1: Let's talk about the Republicans. Their convention next week in Cleveland will be an event which really marks a fundamental transformation in that party. I just want to take a step back from the the hourly and daily barrage of news to, to look at that for a minute. What would you say Donald Trump has done to the Republican Party this year?
3: Well, he may have destroyed it. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see. I mean, but uh, the, the Republican Party has been moving in, in, in two directions, and he is accelerated one of those direct one of those movements and and completely kerfuffled the other the movement he's accelerated is a movement to a white nationalist party the republican party beginning with the goldwater campaign in 64 uh, when they nominated one of the only 19 senators to vote against the civil rights act has uh, substituted for the old line dixiecrat democrats as the party of the white South and then uh, as the white working class has grown more economically and culturally marginal in the country, picked up large chunks of that through its white nationalist appeal as well. Uh, Remember before anyone ever conceived of Donald Trump running for president with the possible exception of Donald Trump himself. The, uh, the the party was moving to suppress minority voting, do all kinds of things, run law and order campaigns, which were, were thinly veiled anti uh, anti African American campaigns. Uh, had the Willie Horton thing back in 1988, doing all sorts of things to uh, a, appeal to a kind of white nationalist, white racist sensibility. So Trump has, you know, accelerated that. What he's kerfuffled, what he's completely, you know, muddled is a Republican economic message that we need to slash the American welfare state, such as it is, reduce Social Security, and 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 what have you, because he understands his base of support is disproportionately, though by no means entirely, that white working class that feels abandoned. It's still not support for the, work, for the welfare state across the board. There's a good welfare state that supports worthy uh, white retirees, and the bad welfare state, like Obamacare, which has been vilified by uh, Republicans from the get-go as uh, being disproportionately aiding minorities. So that's bad. But, but you know, I mean, r- r- at least at some level, he has cast out some elements of Republican economics. It's still taxes that favor the rich, but it's, we can't really go after Social Security and Medicare. And to the degree that the Republicans have been a free trade party, of course, he has uh, wadded that up and uh, pretty much uh, discarded it as well.
1: When you wrote about the future of the Republicans after Trump for the American prospect, you had some, to me, startling statistics about the changing presence of the white working class in the electorate the white working class made up 65% of the electorate in 1980 today they are 36% that is a that is a massive transformation
3: well it is and you know the combination of downward mobility and you know sort of sudden cultural and political marginalization which the white working class has has gone through is the kind of thing that can produce a uh, Donald Trump. If, uh, if if a Donald Trump with the ability to exploit those things comes along, so in a certain sense, Trump was a disaster waiting to happen. And uh, the Republicans uh, will, you know, uh, reap whatever benefit and or pay whatever price. I suspect ultimately the latter for 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 that confluence of the man and and the moment.
1: One last thing. Donald Trump, it seems pretty clear, is not going to be president. He's the most disliked political figure in the history of polling. But he might be clearing a path for a successor who would pick up his themes but would not be so egomaniacal or, uh, or ridiculous. I wouldn't be surprised if young Republicans right now are looking at Trump and thinking, I could do a better job than Trump with the same ideas, but without the obnoxious personality. Don't you think that is a, that is a possible future for the Republican Party? It
3: is, uh, although, I mean, the Republican Party has several possible futures. Of course, if you have too many futures, you probably really don't have any future, okay. but uh, uh, we, we shall see.
1: The the alternative is is the little Marco route. Marco Rubio was the future of the Republican Party uh, four years ago. Young Latino, good looking, interested in making a deal to create a path to legalization for immigrants. The official leadership of the party pointed to that in their report, and Marco was their man. Unfortunately, he turned out for them. He turned out to be a lousy candidate, but. I wonder if if reviving that will be on the agenda of people like the Bush family uh, and the rest of the establishment once uh, Trump has lost.
3: Well, it probably will, but they they didn't get any traction in in this year's campaign. I mean, you know the anti immigrant stuff, the xenophobia is 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 very close to the core of the Republican base you know i mean republicans pretty much have to wait for their older white core supporters which is most of the party uh to die off uh i think before they can uh make that shift that is that that is a problem it was it was the base of the republican party that uh uh, compel Marco Rubio to abandon his support for immigration reform well before he declared for president, yeah. and which completely marginalized uh, Jeb Bush uh, while uh, uh, he was a candidate.
1: And in some ways, the most likely future of the Republican Party nationally is what's happened to the Republican Party in California, something you've written about often. But remind us what happened and where they are now.
3: They have completely marginalized themselves in California because they took the strong anti-immigrant position. Pete Wilson uh, endorsed it in 1994 for Prop 187, which would have denied Virtually all public services to undocumented immigrants, including you know the right to attend K through 12 school. This managed to uh, estrange uh, the, the the biggest growing part of the of the California population, the uh, Latino part, which is now the largest demographic group in the state, having uh, surpassed non Hispanic whites, and it completely marginalized the Republican Party in California. Now the, the United States is not going to demographically look like California, but it's moving in, in that direction enough. So unless the Republican Party can change its position on these issues, on immigration, on all of that, those sorts of issues, they're they're going to be marginalized as well. But again, I think that almost requires the dying off of the current uh, Republican base of voters. Uh, so they're, they're they're in a fix, and it's it's not an easily resolvable fix, given who their supporters are and what they believe.
1: Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. Now it's time to talk about radicals, resistors, vets, and hippies. Yes, we're still thinking about the 60s, and so is Clara Bingham. She's a former White House correspondent for Newsweek. She's written for Harper's Vanity Fair, Ms. Magazine, and many others. She's the author of the book, Class Action, The Landmark Case That Changed Sexual Harassment. And now she has a new book out. It's called Witness to the Revolution. It's an oral history of the 60s, focusing on the years 1969 and 1970. Clara Bingham, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, John.
1: What do you tell people who say it's time to get over the 60s? Enough already with the long hair and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. (laughs)
0: Well, I tell them that the 60s was much more important than just that. And I miss the 60s personally. I was born in 1963, but I, I realized by the time I graduated from college in 85 that so much had gone on just 15 years before I graduated that, from college that completely changed who I could be as a person, i.e., feminism, the end of the draft environmentalism, gay rights, I could do any job I wanted to do. And so I wanted to go back and look at the substance of the 60s, find out what happened during that decade that has changed our country. I say that we found our soul. There's so many different ways that it changed our country politically and culturally, and I wanted to explore that through the personal stories of the 100 people that I interviewed.
1: So the 100 people that you interviewed some are famous, some are not so famous. You did not do Bernie or Hillary, even though they're they're certainly part of the story. Hillary, well, Hillary was featured in Life magazine for her commencement speech at her graduation from Wellesley in nineteen sixty-nine. She's right in the middle of this story.
0: That's true. And there's um much debate about how involved she was in the Panther twenty-one trial and at Yale when she was at law school there. Uh, when she worked for the ACLU and apparently monitored the trial, that was in, in May of 1970. Um, but I I didn't get an interview with her. Sorry. It's okay. She was I busy. Think,
1: I think we we know a lot about Hillary <laughs> Hillary's life, and the the other hundred are, are are just fine. The book starts with David Harris, one of the heroes of the anti-war movement and draft resistance. He explains that everything grew out of the Mississippi taproot. What was the Mississippi taproot?
0: I love that line. Um, David Harris, along with many of his compatriots in the anti-war movement, cut his teeth in the South, in the in the middle of the 60s during the voter registration summers. He was down there in Mississippi in 64. Many were down in 64, 65. Thousands of white college students went down to Mississippi and it was eye-opening uh, for them to witness that level of hatred and racism. And also, to, they learned how to organize. And those skills and also that sense of justice and wanting to fight for justice and seeing the bravery of a lot of the the Black people in Mississippi who are just trying to vote was inspiring. And so when the draft kicked in in 1965 and we started sending hundreds of thousands of troops to Vietnam— This group of young activists, like David Harris, decided that they didn't want to go. And they knew exactly how to express themselves by organizing all of the other kids. And David Harris was at um, Stanford. So he started something called the Resistance. And it was a form of civil disobedience. He felt that if thousands of young men would refuse to go to Vietnam, and instead of just burning their draft cards or running to to Canada, they would actually go to jail and do jail time. And as thousands of them did that, which they did, um, it would sort of stop the military machine in its tracks.
1: You also cover the Pentagon Papers trial, Woodstock, LSD, the FBI campaign to destroy the Black Panthers, and you have a great section on the women's liberation movement. I had forgotten how great Robin Morgan was. She's the author of Goodbye to all that, where she wrote, Goodbye forever, counterfeit left, male-dominated, crass-glacked mirror reflection of the American nightmare.
0: And that's just the beginning of her amazing screed of anger against the white male left. And she was really speaking for, you know, thousands of women who had worked in the civil rights movement. And then um later on in the anti-war movement, and as she said, they were sick of roll I'm sick of rolling your joints and pouring your coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and they also they felt sexually used as well. And sexually they had to give themselves up in order to be part of the movement. No one was a, a leader or spokesman. They were very much in the in the back. And this this to Robin and so many women, by by the time 1970 rolled around and it had been you know, six years of this. You know, they were really angry, and the the moral hypocrisy of fighting for justice and freedom, but at the same time, inside SNCC, SDS, Weather, all these different groups, there was so much sexism. And in, in SDS, for example, women got up at one of the SDS conventions. I don't know if you were there, John. I was um, not. <laughs> and wanted to have a women's platform, and um, they people threw tomatoes at them and booed at them. So there was a sense that women's rights were not important enough, that the war was raging, there was extreme racism in the streets, and how can you bother us with your own rights?
1: The war in Vietnam, in the two years you're studying, of course, was the uh, invasion of Cambodia that Nixon ordered in May 1970, which provoked the largest student strike in the nation's history, something like two and a half million students boycotting classes, including the classes at Kent State University in Ohio, where National Guardsmen killed four students. One of them was Alison Krauss, shot when she was 345 feet away from the Guardsmen. You interviewed her sister, Laurel Kraus, what did she tell you about Allison's death?
0: Well, Laurel said that Allison was a young peace activist and that she was just standing along with her friends in in the parking lot and she was 300 feet away from the National Guard who had loaded weapons and turned on all the students. They shot 80 bullets at they shot 13 students, four of them along with Allison were killed. And one thing that Laurel told me that was news to me was that Alice was left, Allison was left for forty-five minutes bleeding before the ambulance came. Um, the ambulance was available for the National Guardsmen, but not for the students.
1: Seymour Hirsch also published his reports on the Milai massacre uh, in nineteen sixty-nine. You interviewed him about that, and he recalled talking to the mother. Of one of the soldiers who participated in the My Lai massacre, remember what she said to him about her son.
0: See, that was he. He tracked down Medlow, in Indiana, at a chicken farm. He, he. It, it's the story of how he found everyone in the America Owl Division who was at My Lai Was fascinating. But then he he finally got to Medlow, who had been injured. Half of his leg was blown off, and. Before he met him, he met his mother outside of their house. And the mother said, I, I, I sent them a good boy and they, they gave me back a murderer.
1: I sent them a good boy and they gave me back a murderer. And you have another incredible quote about Kent State. One of the most amazing people you interviewed, I don't know, I've never seen an interview like this before, was that street cop in Madison, a guy named Tom McCarthy who uh spoke freely about uh, their vicious campaign against the counterculture in Madison what did he tell you about uh the Madison police Force after they heard about Kent State
0: he was one of the more important interviews I got because it was so important to see how the other side was looking at the yes. movement and he he they had been battling the movement uh in for years and after Kent State McCarthy and the other and his friends in the police force went around and lifted up four fingers to all the students and said, guess what? We got four. You got zero. And he said they were gleeful about it. Absolutely gleeful, which also you would think that people like Dean Kaler, who had been shot and paralyzed, or Joe Lewis, two other men I talked to who had been shot at Kent State, would have, you know, people would have supported them. But in fact, they received hate mail and so did their parents, people saying, The National Guard clearly didn't aim well enough. It's too bad that you're still alive. There was a lot of hatred against the young people in this movement.
1: 1969, 1970 is also the era of the the weathermen and then the weather underground, that group of 150 or so leaders of SDS who launched a bombing campaign against mostly symbolic targets— My biggest complaint against the Weathermen was the way they helped uh, kill SDS. They just voted to disband the largest student anti-war radical organization in in America. In your book, Mark Rudd explains, and so does Bill Ayers, what they concluded. They'd been trying to organize the American people and and American students to oppose the war in Vietnam— Mark Rudd said the reason they gave up on organizing Americans was that most Americans were fuckheads. (laughs) And therefore, they're going to start blowing things up. The striking thing, Bernadine Dorn told you that they met with the Vietnamese and Cuban leaders, and the Vietnamese and Cuban leaders, quote, all told us not to do it. The Vietnamese and the Cubans said... We want a movement with millions of people that's open and public, not a clandestine group of 100 people bombing the men's room in the Capitol. And so did
0: the Black Panthers, who told them also not to get violent. And um, one of the reasons why they were violent was to avenge the murder of Mark Hampton and avenge the attack on the Black Panthers, who they saw as the vanguard of the movement. But even the Panthers thought it was wrongheaded.
1: Claire Bingham... You seem to think the 60s have some relevance today.
0: Well, I mean, I, I didn't plan it to have three people running for president who were all baby boomers and who all <laughs> cut their teeth during the late 60s. And here we have Bernie Sanders, who is an ex hippie from, you know, commune-filled Vermont. And, of course, Hillary, the classic moderate. And and then Donald Trump, who got Many student deferments and a medical deferment. So it is kind of amazing. I feel as if this election is haunted by the '60s, and there's there's so much there's so many parallels to draw. And it's so important, is with you know, so much history to really understand how it informs what's happening today.
1: Clara Bingham, her oral history of the '60s is witness to the revolution. It's a surprisingly powerful and moving book. Clara, thanks for the book, and thanks for coming in today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.